invite you now to turn in your Bibles to the book of Psalms, Psalm 119, and we'll read the whole thing. I'm just looking for reactions. No, we're going to start reading at verse 73. That's on page 608 in the Pew Bible. So Psalm 119, beginning at verse 73. Psalm 119, beginning at verse 73, please give your attention to the reading of God's holy word. Your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I have hoped in your word. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. Let the insolent be put to shame, because they have wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. Let those who fear you turn to me, that they may know your testimonies. May my heart be blameless in your statutes, that I may not be put to shame. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, I invite you to keep your Bibles open there on your laps as we look at this psalm. But before we do that, will you pray with me? Gracious Father, you have given us this word. You have given us this word so that we can know you, so that we can know how you would have us to live, so that we can know how you have saved us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, Father, as we meditate upon it, we we call on one of the promises that you have given to us and that your spirit would illumine and enlighten our hearts. And so, Lord, as we meditate on this word this morning, we pray that our hearts would be open to the application of the Spirit, so that, Lord, as we go out into this world that is around us, as we live our lives, that we would learn to apply it day in and day out, minute by minute, moment by moment. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Do you know someone who has, how should I put this, a, a hope or a joy that is infectious, right? It's deep. It's not, a, uh, it's not a, a silly joy that they're using to mask something, but they are truly, deeply hopeful. They are truly joyful, even though they may be enduring some form of suffering, some form of setback, some form of trial or temptation, Even in those circumstances, they exude joy and hope. Even as they face daunting parts of life that seem impossible, their joyfulness amidst, amongst, in the middle of their suffering, is notable. You see it. You can feel it. You experience it. You're drawn in by it as you meet them. And then you find out that that hope That joy comes from having a deep faith and a deep understanding in God's word, in his promises. That that is the source of that, even as they weep in this veil of tears we call life. Psalm 119 is a very long song about the glory of God's word. That can be found in every section, almost every verse, where the psalmist is singing 
and glorifying God for his word. But also something that we see in nearly every section is also a a connection between God's word and how it applies to human suffering. We can see that here in verses 75 and 78 where it talks about uh, affliction and suffering and those types of things. But this psalm is not just about suffering. It's not just about affliction. But it is a psalm, right? Because if you, if you had every one of these sections, right? This is the Yod section, right? It's the 10th uh, letter in the Hebrew alphabet. If every section was just about God's word and suffering, then once you preached one section, you preached the whole psalm. Everything would be the same. But in each section, there is a little different, under, different way to look at how God's word ministers in our suffering. And so here, in this passage, it's a look at how God's word, as we're suffering, and the great effect that that has on us and others as we go through those difficult circumstances. So that's the unique aspect about this little section in this large psalm. They sing, this psalm sings of the effect of placing one God, one's hope in God's faithfulness and how that affects others around you. Going for, back to that first question I asked you about knowing someone who has that infectious joy and hope even through suffering. And think about, if, if you can think about that person now, or you can think about what it might be to, to talk to that person, right? You're carried along into their joy and carried along into their hope. Well, that's what this psalm is about. This section of this psalm is about. Is how does your answering suffering and difficulty according to God's word affect yourself, but also those who are around you? If we were to boil this down to one sentence, we might say that from here we want to see that our hope in God's faithful word will provide encouragement to those who are around us. But maybe you're thinking, yeah, right. That's not always so easy, is it? I would imagine that any one of us could think of a time, think of a person where they were suffering with something, And perhaps we humbly, carefully, pastorally went to them and tried to encourage them with God's word, and they threw it in your face. Don't talk to me about Jesus right now. Right? There's plenty of times in our life where our suffering, where our sorrow, where our you fill in the blank is so hard, we cannot hear God's word. It's hard to apply it. It's hard to hear it. That's what this psalm is here about. To encourage us to think about those things. The world around us isn't going to apply God's word to suffering, right? The world around us is not going to go to those families in South Texas and bring to them God's word of comfort and joy. But it's hard. It's hard sometimes to hear. But I think it's one of those things where if we can keep it before our eyes, if we can practice it, that we can encourage each other. We can share the hope that we have by living out loud. Living uh, out loud meaning 
obvious to everyone. Living out loud in God's comforting promises. Whether, whether the trial you have is small or whether it is large or anywhere in between, if we can begin to practice those things, that's what this psalm is getting at, is how that affects other people. Now, a natural question that may come to mind would be, well, how can I know? How can I know that God's Word will have this effect? When, maybe when you think of God's Word, maybe people you talk to, maybe people you know, when they think of God's Word, they think of do's and don'ts. They think of old stories. They don't think of things that in their mind would be helpful, encouraging, or bring joy. So this passage that we have then before us, the first thing that I want us to see in it then, is that God's commands are comforting. God's commands are comforting. And I want you to think about maybe the last time you were scared or needed to be comforted. Or maybe your children were scared or needed to be comforted. And think about that experience. Who's going to comfort your child in a terrible thunderstorm better? An utter stranger or you, mom or dad? A brother or sister, someone that you know, someone who's personal to you, right? We can receive comfort, we can enjoy comfort from someone who we know personally. Now, let's say something happened here, and there's a child, and they would see me and they would know, well, he's not too sketchy looking, but I don't see mom and dad, I'll go to him for safety. But as soon as mom and dad show up, they're going to beeline to mom or dad. Why? Because they know mom and dad personally. There's a connection there. And so they can receive comfort more readily. Well, as we look at this passage, we're going to come into contact with God's character. As we read His Word and as we read about Him, they are the same thing. Whatever we know about God's Word, we know about God. Whatever we know about God, we know about His Word. And so we're going to look at some characteristics of our God. We're going to see how he's personal, how he's righteous, faithful, loving, and merciful. The first then is our God is personal. Look at verse 73, the first part of it. Your hands have made me and fashioned me. Right? Anybody who's gone to Sunday school has heard the creation story, right? How God very personally, right? God did not just speak and man grew out of the ground or just popped up out of the ground like so many other aspects of the creation. But God actually formed Adam, as it were, with his hands out of the mud and breathed life into him. Human beings, as the image bearers of God, know something that no other creature knows, and that is the personal nature of God in our creation. He is personally involved course we know the fall happened adam and eve sinned throwing the world into chaos and what is the bible about after that in many sense it's about god pursuing it's about god protecting it's about god drawing near and knowing his people personally he is a truly personal god 
This coming to full effect and in its fullest sense when Jesus Christ came. Second person of the Trinity. God Himself. Emmanuel. God with us. The book of Hebrews says, Therefore He had to be made like His brothers in every respect so that He might become a merciful, faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus had to be made like us. Is there anything more personal that God could do but send His Son to come to the earth to be made like us. There is nothing more that He could do. See, there's not a mother, there's not a father, a sibling, or a friend who could be more personal and know us better than God. There is no one who can know us better than God Himself. And so he gives us his word of life so that we can know him. He gives us a word of life so that we would know exactly what we need, so that we would know exactly where we can find it. It is because of that personal nature of our Father that he enters into our world, enters into our suffering to come to us with his promises, his good word of comfort. Well, the passage goes on. Verse 75. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. And so God is righteous. He is faithful. What do those things mean? What does it mean that God is righteous? The fact that God is righteous means that he is morally perfect. He can't do anything wrong. Now that's pretty hard for us to understand. What, the, what would that look like to know someone who is perfectly righteous? Because there's even those who love us the most, even those we trust the most, they're human beings. They're fallen. There's going, they're going to do things that are morally wrong. God can do no wrong. So he's personal and he can do nothing wrong. He is perfectly righteous. Obviously, he's made that most known through Jesus Christ as his righteousness, as Jesus is called that. What does it mean that God is faithful? It means that God is perfectly loyal to his word. And so if he has said it, he will do it. No questions. No chance of going a different direction. How he reveals himself in his word and by his spirit is who he is. He is utterly faithful. And that extends especially to his people as he applies this word to heart and life. This aspect of his character. Now why is that important? Look at the last words of that verse. That in faithfulness, you have afflicted me. What does it mean then that if we're experiencing some sort of suffering, trial, temptation, an affliction as the psalm talks about here, but yet we know that God is perfectly righteous, He can't do anything wrong, that He's perfectly faithful, that He will not do anything outside of His Word, what does that mean for us? It means that in that moment, hear me now, 
in that moment, there is nothing better for you. Right? God cannot do anything wrong. So if God cannot do anything wrong, He can't allow you, afflict you, cause you suffering for any other reason that is good purpose, that is a righteous purpose, that is a faithful purpose. That's why the psalmist talks that way. Right? can accept the affliction that brings because, because of God's character. Think about it. If we're going to be theologically consistent, right? That's important to us, to be theologically consistent. That if our God is who He said He is, as He has revealed Himself in the Bible, that when we experience trouble, it is of perfect timing and perfect intensity. And we can trust that because He is personal, because He is faithful, because He is righteous. In His faithfulness, He promises then to provide all that we need, all that we need for our good and His glory. He cannot go back on what He says about Himself. He cannot go out outside of Himself. He cannot say otherwise about you and what He will do. He cannot do anything else. It is perfectly sure. So even though we may suffer, we know that He is perfectly true. 1 Peter 3, verse 18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. How personal is our God? That His Son would come, take our form, and suffer, even though He is completely righteous, die and suffer for us, the unrighteous. Is there any other greater promise? Any other greater word? His righteousness and faithfulness means that this is true about all who profess the name of Jesus Christ. That He has died for you. That He has suffered as you have suffered. And He knows what you are experiencing. God knows what you are suffering. Is that not a great word of comfort? Of assurance? Of peace? Promise? and comfort for every day that we live. And it goes on, the passage goes on, verse 66, or 76 and 77. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me that I may live. The love of God. When we, when we look at theology, when we look at the, the whole of what the Bible says, we know that that God is love, that, it, that is His character, that as He exercises His character, it is always touched by love. That He is love, right? Someone try to define what love is, right? A feeling, it's an action, it's a thought, it's, it's all these different things. It's, it's hard to define. But God is love. Pure love. It is the deepest possible expression of His character. God does love His creation, but He especially loves His people. Those whom He calls His own. So that's an aspect of His character that we see here, but there's a second part, that He's, that he's merciful. Let your mercy come to me that I may live. So what is mercy? 
Mercy is when we are not given what we deserve. When God does not give us what we deserve, which is, which is suffering in this life and the next, which is death, which is destruction, which is we do not deserve to live before a thrice holy God. But He doesn't give us that. The passage says, instead He gives us life. And in Jesus Christ, He gives us life abundant and forevermore. And so God is merciful. Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5, some of my favorite verses in all the Bible. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Right, Bringing together those, those two concepts of who God is. Is there anything more comforting? That as we make our way through life, as we stumble, as we fail, as we fall, as other people sin against us, as we suffer, as we're tempted, as we go through trial, even as we experience the consequences of our sins, is there no greater comfort to know that when we were dead, because of His mercy and love, He makes us alive again in Jesus Christ. His love, His mercy transforms dead men, dead women, dead boys, dead girls, and gives us life in eternity. Living heirs of His kingdom. No longer lost, but found. No longer alone, but always forever together with Christ, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So have I convinced you to understand that God's Word truly is a comfort? Well, maybe you're wondering, how does this, what does this look like in everyday life? How does this work itself out? And that's the second thing that I want us to see in this psalm, that God's commands are attractive. They are attractive. Now what does that mean? I was trying to think of an analogy to think about what does it mean that God's Word is attractive? That idea that what we know about God, what we know about this Word, how does it go from knowing to exuding out of us in an experiential way to other people? And I came upon a thought, a story. A gentleman in our church a few years ago bought a Tesla Model X. P100D. Now, if you're not a car person, you don't know what that is. But this car came with ludicrous speed, which, if you don't know, is the fastest, quickest Tesla that you can buy. So he drove to church one day and asked me and the other pastor if we wanted to go for a ride. We went for a ride. But he said, now do you want to drive it? You know how you make 50-year-old men giggle like little girls? You put them in a Tesla in ludicrous mode and you tell them to punch it. Right, we could look at the car and we could talk about its statistics, we could talk about its horsepower, we could talk about its falcon wings and all these things. But when we experience flooring it and being thrown in the back seat, you heard grown men giggle like little girls. And while it's not the same type of rejoicing that we're talking about here, it defines, it shows us, it, we experience what it is that that is attractive. 
because we could do it. That's what this second part is about. Is how does what we know about God, what we know about His Word, how does it become attractive to those who are around us? And then as the psalm says, we do it. We experience it. We show it. We put the throttle to the floor and we feel what it means to go from 0 to 60 in 2 seconds. So look at verse 74. What happens when we live by the character of God, when we live as those who know, right? When they know Him personally, His righteous, faithful, loving, merciful character. Look at verse 74. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice. Why? Because I have hoped in your word. Not because I'm awesome, not because I'm attractive, not because I'm so charismatic. They rejoice because of God's Word expressed in my suffering. 1 Peter 2, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. As we live out what God's Word says to us and about us, as we live that out, it projects, it is we ooze God's joy, we ooze His Word, and other people rejoice and they are affected by it. We, of course, we have humility in our weakness, in our witness. Again, it's not about me, it's not about you, it's not about our perseverance, it's not about our greatness, our goodness. It's about the fact that God's Word is something to be hoped in, to give strength. We exhibit the effect of God's grace in our lives. They see the lasting effect of God's Word in our actions. They see the life-giving power of the Spirit, and it is attractive. God is. His Word is. Jesus is attractive. What would it be like The Spirit of Christ was so evident in all of us that it caused others to rejoice in Him. Right, Everybody in this room, that as we go out into this world, and the love of God is so evident that it just oozes in our conversation out and it touches everyone. What would that be like if we made God's Word that attractive? The Church of Jesus Christ lived that way and the attractive Word of God was seen that way. The passage goes on. This amazing love of God, this amazing Word, His amazing character and its comfort is something that is knowable. Verse 79, Let those who fear you turn to Me that they may know your testimonies. Remember the context here is again in the midst of suffering. And the psalmist wants people to witness the truth about God in the midst of of suffering. But see how God is working in his life and be encouraged to know it in a very significant and personal way. The writer wants us to see the attractiveness of God's word and his faithfulness as an encouragement. That's something that can be known, right? We can read about it and we can experience it. We can know it. 
Right? There's a lot of things in life we don't do them because we don't know about them. A child's going to jump out of a second story window. Are they going to do that just for anybody? House is on fire. The kid's got to jump out for safety. They're going to be tentative unless they know the person there. Then they will move. Then they will act because dad's going to catch them. The writer wants us to see this attractiveness of God. That he catches us. That he loves us. That he's personal and near. The church. We come together to lift each other up. To bear each other's burdens. To encourage one another. To share our testimonies of faith. And show what we know about God and His character. And how it is attractive to us. And finally, verse 80. It is honorable. May my heart be blameless in your statutes that I may not be put to shame. We have, you might say, a pandemic of shame in our world today. What is shame? Shame is the experience of being unacceptable. Being less. Unattractive. Shame is being seen by another person and being told of knowing, of them communicating to us, you are unacceptable. Words like inferior, weak, inadequate, loser, you are or and will never will you are and forever will be nothing. Unattractive, stupid, unwanted. These are all words, feelings, and expressions of what it is to know shame. We might have this experience because someone is shaming us because of what they are saying, because of what they are doing, because of how they want to affect us. That can come because they are being abusive, manipulative, or neglectful. We also might feel shame because someone has told us these words. Or for some reason, we want to believe those things about ourselves, and so in some ways we can shame ourselves. Now this is different from guilt. Guilt is that thing that we feel um, a sense of remorse because of something that we have done, which then ought to drive us to um, seek to repent and forgiveness. There's hope in guilt. There's no hope in shame. shame. Shame says I did, or guilt says I did a bad thing and I'm sorry for it. Shame says I did a bad thing because I'm a bad person and I never deserve to be forgiven by anyone because I am, to the core, black and bad. That's what shame is. It's different, it's worse. We still have to weigh our actions and thoughts, right? That's what the passage says. May my heart be blameless in your statutes. And so if I'm feeling shame because I'm living in sin, I'm doing shameful things, well then we should feel those things. But most of the time that's not the situation. Most of the time someone is doing something to us to cause us to feel shame. But here's the great thing about God's Word. What will we believe? 
Will we believe what this person says about how we're nothing, how we're dirt, how we're a loser, how we'll never amount to anything? No one would want you. Or, will we believe what the personal, attractive God, our Creator and Savior says, who says, I died for you. I love you. I created you. You're in my image. Which one will we believe? It's so easy to believe the person that is there telling us these things and saying what these things about who we are that are untrue. It's hard to hear God's Word. But when we can, when we can see in others around us, it is an attractive, it is a good Word. And when we see other people do it, we can, we can know that it is true then about us. God's Word is so very attractive to us and our neighbors because it tells us who we truly are and how God saves us anyway. It tells us who we are, right? We are not good. Read the Word. Read what I read a portion from Ephesians. Read the first three verses of Ephesians 2. It tells us what we're like. But God saves us anyways. God says, I love you anyways. Is that not an amazing, good word? Isn't that something? The psalmist then is asking us, is God's word, is this word comforting? Is it attractive to you? Every one of us, everyone we know is going to suffer. It's inevitable in this life, in this fallen world. And we all have choices to make as we suffer. Here in this section of Psalm 119, we're encouraged to keep God's comforting word at the center of that life, of our lives. Keep it in the forefront. To filter all of that suffering through that word as it comes into our life. Because when we do that, not only will we be blessed and encouraged, those who are around us will also This song reflects to us real life. And when we live out loud by God's Word, it will be noticed. And people will glorify God. They will want to know Jesus Christ. And they will want to rejoice because of the hope that we have because of Him. Can you pray with me? Gracious Father, You have given us this Word. And sometimes, Father, we look at it and it's just ho-hum to us. Sometimes it's just a bunch of words on a page and they don't have meaning for us. But Heavenly Father, I pray that, that each of us, as we go into the week that is ahead, into the life that you have called us to live, that we would be encouraged, that we would be reminded that this Word is a good Word. This Word covers everything. And that, Lord, when, when we live by it, when we struggle and Your Word is there in front of us, those around us will see it. Heavenly Father, it takes strength to do the strength of faith, strength of will. And Lord, sometimes we don't have that. And so we pray that You would give it to us. But the encouragements, the challenges of, of this short passage would change how we approach everyday life. Lord, You know every heart here. You know every circumstance. You know every challenge. And so, Lord, I pray that we would not look upon these things simply. We would not look upon them 
nonchalantly, but that, Heavenly Father, we would know that you know and that we would live in the grace of knowing that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.